everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Rob Murgatroyd Show. Each week, I have conversations with some of the most fascinating people on the planet that can help you live a life of fulfillment. Speaking of fulfillment, if you want to hire me as your coach, head over to robshowcoach.com, fill out an application, and we'll jump on a call to see if we are a good fit to help you create and design your dream life and business. That's robshowcoach.com. Before we get into today's episode, our next Work Hard, Play Hard Mastermind event will be in Dubai and Abu Dhabi for the F1 race on November 16th to the 19th. So look, these trips are designed to get you out of your day-to-day, around some amazing entrepreneurs and provide bucket list experiences that will have you coming home re-energized to grow your business and bring your life to a whole new level. Head over to workhardplayhardexperience.com and fill out an application. All right, let's jump into today's show. I think that nagging feeling of like, there's gotta be more to this and the realization that the void wasn't gonna be filled through these external things started pulling me more and more into a spiritual path. I refuse to do anything that doesn't have impact in the world. And I didn't used to think that way. I mean, I was very materialistic for most of my life. The materialistic world we live in, this more, 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 bigger, better, faster kind of energy that we live in, is largely driven by, in my opinion, deep insecurities and a lack of self-worth and a feeling of, of not feeling safe in this world. Azria and B, welcome to the show. So nice to be here. Thanks for having us. You are so welcome. I'm super excited that the two of you are here. And it's always fun when there's a couple because you're interviewing two at the same time and it's a little bit of a, a tennis match. So I think the best way to do this interview would be sort of a bit of a, a back and forth, if that's cool with you guys. Sure. Absolutely. All right. So B, we're going to start with you. Could you give me a snapshot of what it was like for you growing up in California in the eighties and maybe painting a picture or maybe painting that picture through the lens of growing up inside of an entrepreneurial family. Yeah. Well, thanks for dating me, my, uh, given the years, but yeah, I, I was born, my, my parents are both Cuban immigrants. So I was first generation here and, you know, my father was an entrepreneur from kind of birth and, and, and I kind of turned out that way. Certainly it, it, taught me to view life through the lens of being an entrepreneur and kind of that, that mindset. Um, my father also, you know, he taught me what it was like to be, you know, to what it was like to have determination and work hard. He was the the hardest working man I knew. And, and I kind of followed suit and also I think had some shadow there, right. In the sense that there was this insatiable need for more and it, it, it really had a negative impact on me. And, and in fact, I think, you know, was, was part of the reason my dad manifested pancreatic cancer, but, but yeah, it was a blessing and, and also, you know, had a shadow. Okay. So I'm probably going to stop you guys as we go through this so that we can get clear definitions of what words mean, because I'm not entirely sure what it means. I know I've heard people use the term shadow, but 
you know, other than when, when the sun hits me and I look down and I see a shadow on the ground, it's my only reference for the word. So maybe you can sort of, we could start there with a definition of what does that mean? Yeah. So the shadow, I mean, if you, if you think about the shadow in a literal perspective, it's, is that what you cannot see, right? It's, it's, it's kind of behind you. And, and so it's those parts of our subconscious that are there that are kind of beyond our conscious awareness, obviously. And so the work is the work that we do is really designed around bringing those subconscious elements to the surface so we, we can actually work with them. And so I think, you know, the work is largely about awareness and, and bringing things out of the shadow into awareness allows us to, to tangibly work on more them. Yeah. So I would just add that the shadow is, is that which is suppressed, denied, sort of shoved away, whether, and sometimes that happens very unconsciously, but a lot of times it is kind of this material made up of like insecurities, traumas, childhood wounds. And a lot of it isn't stuff that we're conscious of. So it's kind of governing our life without our conscious awareness. And I think in, in B's father's example, you know, there was this, this entrepreneurial spirit, which of course is a beautiful thing, right? To be a creator and to be willing to do whatever it takes to make something happen. But on the, on the flip side of that, there was a lot of deep existential fear around not being able to provide for the family, really like fear of, of failing as a man. And that fear was also a very strong driving force. So that's when Benjamin talks about the shadow, that's kind of the, the energetic that he's describing. And in his journey of being a successful entrepreneur, he's had to really move through that same patterning. Okay. Got it. So, so your dad has, there's, there's the shadow is effectively running the show in his life and he hasn't, he's not really facing that shadow. It's there and he has to address it. Do I have that right? Yeah, that's correct. And I think that, that, you know, he, I would say that he knew it was there at some level, but he wasn't working with it and he wasn't bringing it to the surface and actually working with it. Okay. He, he was, he felt handcuffed to a certain extent to, to his shadow. Okay, good. All right. I think, I think I got it. So let's, let's move on to Osria. You are a nineties girl. Whenever I say the word nineties girl, all of a sudden I just get this picture in my mind. I don't know why, but you're a nineties girl from Stony Brook, New York, but you grew up in Hamburg, Germany for, I think maybe five years or something. And then you came back to New York and then you moved to Boston. Just briefly, can you unpack that story? For sure. Yeah. I had a very nomadic childhood, very kind of non-traditional upbringing. So my mother was a spiritual seeker always, and she was born in Germany and grew up in the States. So that's where the German background was. And uh, my parents were never married. I was born in, into, you know, a situation where my dad was kind of already moving on with his life. That chapter had ended for them in a romantic sense. And my grandmother was my main caretaker and she was German and she wanted to go back to Germany to finish her years over there. So we lived in Hamburg until I was 10. And then, yeah, when I was 15, we moved from Boston back to Germany and I finished high school and then studied acting over there. And then I moved to Los Angeles when I was 21. What did that time in Germany teach you about life? Cause you had an interesting perspective. You know, I, I moved from LA to Italy. And so, you know, there's this sort of like you know, culture shock. I'm 55 and, you know, all of a sudden I'm living in Italy, you know, from being in America my whole life. But as a child, I suppose that that is different. 
was there any culture shock for you going to Germany or any culture shock for you when you came back and maybe sort of like talk about how that time has affected how you look at the world globally? Mm, It's a great question. Yeah. I think the culture shock for me was because my mother had very specific ideas of how to, how to raise me. There was, for example, I was, we never had a television, so I didn't watch TV. I was pretty much always outdoors or playing imaginary games or, you know, my imagination was very alive, which I think is still one of my strongest gifts in this, in, in, in my adult life and has allowed me to create a really magnificent life. That is a manifestation of my, my dreams, largely because there was not a lot of other imprints that came in. And so what was jarring for me was when, you know, around 10, 11, 12, 13, when we moved back to the States, that bubble that I had lived in kind of burst. And there was a real exposure kind of to the call it harsh realities of like normal human reality and the violence on television and and, and in movies and TV shows. I wasn't used to that. So I didn't have any kind of protection against that emotionally. So it really impacted me in a dramatic way to be exposed to that and the way that people operated. And so it kind of catalyzed a pretty strong numbing process for me where I felt like I just... I just felt like I felt so deeply my empathy was so high that it wasn't sustainable for me. And I had to grow a thicker skin. Mm, Interesting. And where do you guys live now? We're in California. You're in California. Okay, cool. Got it. I can see the sunshine coming in. Okay. So B, we're going to do a a couple more background questions. Then we're going to dig into what you guys do. So in the late nineties, you founded Fiesta Food, which was a Hispanic food store and you grew it to 10 stores. Then you had an exit with one of the largest Hispanic or the largest Hispanic grocer in the country. Looking back, what was the most significant lesson that you learned from that experience? Oh man, I don't, I don't think I could narrow that down to one thing. That business, I mean, we had 1800 employees. It was a pretty sizable organization. It had, you know, logistics, distribution, manufacturing components, real estate components, you know, finance, operational components. We had scratch bakeries and restaurants. And so it was a crash course in so many different, it was like, it was five businesses rolled into one. You know, when I sold it, we were doing a couple hundred million dollars in revenue. And so I think it, it, I I wouldn't say there was one lesson as much as it like, it was a really good place to learn what it is to be an entrepreneurial in a, in a, in a low margin business, right. Which is difficult, right. So, you know, you have to be really sharp in everything yeah. to actually make it work. And I really just fell in love with it. I got thrown into that business. My dad was on the verge of bankruptcy when I graduated college and it was like, Hey, I, I have this idea. I'm going to throw everything we have into this. And we're like on the cusp of losing everything. I need you. And so we co-founded that business together. And I I refer to it as kind of like a fixed marriage, like an arranged marriage. Like I didn't have a choice in it, but I fell in love quickly. And I just immediately fell in love with being an entrepreneur. And I worked 80, hundred hours a week for, you know, 15 years. And, and it didn't feel like work. Uh, I was so jazzed and excited for most of that time. The last few years I kind of got burnt out, but yeah. So I just, I, I, basically, you know, learn, learn from the bottom up in that business. When we started, we had 30 employees and we grew it to, you know, 1800 in 12 years. So it was a pretty dynamic time. 
right, we're gonna we're gonna get into as we move along. We're gonna get into sort of how your business focus shift in a different direction than just entrepreneurially based. And we'll we'll get there. Azrea, one more question on the background before we get into the meat of this. You mentioned earlier that you wanted to be an actress and you did improv classes. You even auditioned for CSI, which I think is probably a lot of fun. But then you realized, hey, this, you know, this thing isn't for me. What was it that made the shift for you? Why did you go from this is the direction I want to go into, I'm done with this? Mm. Well, it certainly wasn't an overnight shift. I was incredibly committed to my path as an actress. And that was something that I threw myself head over heels into. And But I discovered this phenomenon that a lot of people discover, you know, when they start getting what they think they want, I would start to book the roles that I thought I wanted. And then I would find myself on set and whether it was CSI or Parks and Recreation or, you know, shows that I, that I was like excited to be on and was, had worked my ass off to get on. And I would discover this phenomenon that somehow still, even after all of that, there was something missing inside of me. And it was just this nagging feeling that I couldn't quite shake. And so I started to try and fill that in other ways. So I started writing my own screenplays, producing my own content. And that was empowering because it was, it was more me, but there was still a big part of that that was trying to fit into a box as well. Like I was trying to play the game of Hollywood and I was like, well, you know, with, with the low budgets that I can afford, like what, what story can I tell that would be the most marketable that would get me the most interest with agents and managers and distributors. And so I was still always trying to play this game of pleasing others to get to some future, you know, happiness point that, that I had created in my mind. And whenever I reached those perceived milestones, there was still that nagging feeling. And so I think that nagging feeling of like, there's gotta be more to this. And the realization that the void wasn't going to be filled through these external things started pulling me more and more into a spiritual path, a path of self-development, of, of, of personal transformation, and really starting to dig deeper into myself and asking like, what is it that I'm really here to do uniquely on this planet? And how can I find the fulfillment that I seek externally in the present moment? How, like, how about that? And, and so I was really introduced to that world through kind of initially just like law of attraction literature, and then eventually having some really profound experiences with plant medicines, mm-hmm. uh, psilocybin and ayahuasca in particular were really significant tools that supported me in piece by piece, letting go of my attachment to what I thought I wanted. And then really seeing and being shown what I really wanted, what I truly deep down wanted, which was to live my purpose in the most, you know, fully uninhibited expression that I could. And my purpose was intrinsically connected to being of service to others. And I didn't know that as an actress. So when that started to reveal itself, that transition out of the entertainment industry started to to happen. And, And what's cool is it's come full circle now because I'm actually still making films, but just in a completely different context. So cool. You know, when I meditate, I end my meditation with, I always ask, you know, the universe to give me a little, little wink, a little sign that, you, that you're listening in any unique way that only I would know. And last night I had dinner with the director of Parks and Rec. And no way. Yeah. As soon as you, <laughs> as soon as you said that, I got, I got chills from my head to toe and I went, okay, all right, you're listening. Got it. So it was really funny. Hey, it's Rob. 
I wanna jump in and take a quick second to say you gotta get a coach. It just makes a difference. A coach can offer you perspective and accelerate your goals so much faster. If you wanna work with me, head over to robshowcoach.com, fill out an application and we'll jump on a call. All right, let's get back to the show. Okay. So B, in 2019, you made a shift in your life when you met Azrea. Can you walk us through how you went from a profit-driven investor to a philanthropreneur and maybe talk, <laughs> and maybe talk about why? Yeah. So in 2016, my father passed away and my father was my best friend and that had a, and he was only 24 years older than me. So that had a traumatic impact on me. And I was already, you know, that's six years after selling our, our first business. And I was doing a bunch of other entrepreneurial investments, but I was kind of like, okay, like, what am I doing with my life? And it really caused me to question my, my purpose. And I started saying I was going to start living with more purpose, but at the core, I didn't really mean it. And I found myself two years after his death, heavily, heavily invested in, in the cannabis industry. And I found myself in a massive lawsuit. And it was really, that was my spiritual awakening. I, I, a massive lawsuit, it, it was just taking over my life. I was spending a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars $200,000 a month in legal fees. And it, it in a position for a little while. And I was like, how the hell did I get here? I'm in a place where I don't, I didn't necessarily need to work. I was very comfortable. I could be doing anything I wanted in the world. And here I am dealing with this massive lawsuit. And, and so I really took that as a lesson. And so at that time in 2018, I said, okay, I can't trust myself to, to live to walk in integrity with what I want to do, what I say I want to do and what I'm actually doing. And so I took all the things I'd learned over the years from, you know, YPO and Vistage and Tiger 21, all the retreats I'd done, all the books I'd read. And I had, I had a stack that I would once a year pull out of papers that was like 10 inches thick. And I would go through this, I'd go hide for a day and do my planning for the next year. And I said, okay, I'm going to take everything I could possibly learn. I'm going to put it in a template. And so I built at the time, with that time we called it, I called it a personal strategic plan which has now evolved into the becoming operating system. But literally I may, I spent probably 500 hours building this, this deck that was a guide for my life. And it was a, an analysis of who I was in the world, the themes, the patterns of my life, and in, and a real deep psychological interpretation of those themes. What was the shadow interpretation of those themes, like the negative side of those themes and the positive side. And then also created promises to myself, which I decided what my why was. And then I created promises. And between my why and my promises to myself, those were the filter with which I now looked into the future and set my goals and my intentions. And so I created this 200-page operating system and was like, okay, I, I'm going to share this with the world in some way. And then a few months after making that commitment, I ran into Azria and we, you know, within two weeks of meeting each other, we were planning our entire lives together. Like literally we're like, we're writing a book or we're doing this coaching. Like it was just, it was an, an explosion when we met and I, we realized how our different strengths put together were just so powerful. And now that operating system is a fundamental piece of the becoming process that we take people through. But really lawsuit was my kind of spiritual awakening. It was the universe punching me in the face saying, hey, 
you're saying you want to walk in integrity and you're not, let me give you a little lesson to help you, you know, along your way. But that was the catalyst for my transition. And, and now I'm in a place where, you know, I'm devoting all my time and resources to what we're building, but, but big beyond that, just like I, I'm re- I refuse to do anything that doesn't have impact in the world. And I didn't used to think that way. I mean, I was very materialistic for most of my life. And since you've made that decision, how do you feel inside your body? And let me, let me see if I can quantify that or explain that a bit more. The average entrepreneur that I come in contact with or interview for my show, there's, there's sort of like a nervous energy, you know, there's like a white knuckling, like I've got this goal and I'm going to just wrestle that gorilla to the grounds until it's accomplished. And then they accomplish it. And I will generally ask them when you got the hundred million dollar paycheck, what changed? And they will often say, not a lot, but going through that time to get the hundred million, there was stress, anxiety. There are a string of divorces and, you know, separation from the children and, you know, getting fatter and, you know, all things that nobody wants to have. But when you make a decision like you've made in your life now, I would suspect that none of that stuff happens. And inside your body, there's a a joy, perhaps, of where you're headed. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that shift from profit-driven to philanthropreneur in how it actually feels day-to-day in your body. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I resonate with everything you said from get being fat and stressed out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, at one point I weighed 30 pounds heavier than I do now and, and had probably 10, 15 pounds less muscle. I spent most of my entire life in a state of perpetual anxiety. And I think that the materialistic world we live in this more and more and more bigger, better, faster kind of energy that we live in is largely driven by, in my opinion, deep insecurities and a lack of self-worth and a a feeling of, of not feeling safe in this world. And for me, that was very true. And, you know, as a child, uh, I talk about it in the book, you know, I really couldn't read. I read one book really through high school and it, it took me a long time to get to a place where I felt like I was even smart in, you know, college. And then being an entrepreneur, I kind of was like, wait, wait, I'm actually like savvy just in a different way. Mm-hmm. But that insecurity for me drove this insatiable need for external validation. And then and 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 the accumulation of things because I didn't feel safe, right? There's this insecure, the little boy who couldn't read. And so no matter how much I had, there was an anxiety that once I had it, I was going to lose it. And so then how to keep it and how to make it grow, because if I lose some, I need to make more over here. And so there's this insatiable need for more. And I believe that I, my father had that same insecurity and same insatiable need for more. And I believe it's what caused him to manifest pancreatic cancer and and really killed him really at a young age. He was 67. And so I really resonated with that. And I didn't know I had this anxiety because it was my normal. It's kind of like when you start eating really healthy over a period of time and all of a sudden you eat bad for a few days and you feel awful. Yeah. Well, I'm like, how? I used to eat bad all the time and I felt okay. Well, you're okay was not okay. It was just your normal, right? Yep. 
Yeah, no, so, I, I get it. It's like somebody smoking cigarettes, either when they start or stop. It's like, how did you and how did how did you? It's, it's, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, 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 I totally get what you're saying. Um, so I had this anxiety. I would wake up every day with this deep anxiety in my system, and I didn't realize it. And so I think one, you, you know, it's one. It's it's finally living with purpose has helped that. But I think deeper than that is, it's not just shifting from profit to purpose that that made that shift in in the way i feel my internal state of being because i know a lot of people who run nonprofits that have that same anxiety and so it's really doing the deep personal work that shifted that for me and for me and the, you know we don't believe plant based medicine is for everything but ayahuasca was a huge catalyst in that bringing all that stuff to the surface so i could work through it and so i went through about a 3 year deep deep personal transformation. And I can honestly say that now I wake up in the morning and there might be stress and you know, life can get intensive, especially right now as we're birthing everything, but there's not that underpinning of anxiety. Like there's a feeling that if it all went to shit tomorrow, I'm good. good. Like life is good. I'm protected. The universe is there to support me. And I never had that. And so I would say the reason I feel the calm the deep calm and peace inside of me is not because I shifted from profit to purpose. It's because I did the deep work to kind of um, bring all those insecurities to the surface. Really good. All right. Azrea, Azrea, I'm getting it. I'm getting it. <laughs> Azrea, I want to talk on a super basic level and, you know, take me with training wheels here. Okay. What is plant medicine and how does it work physiologically in the body? Yeah. So I guess I'll just put a disclaimer out there. A, we're not shamans, facilitators in that way. We, we, we work with trained professionals that we do selectively bring into some of our retreats, but but that we have not been initiated into like a, like an ayahuasca lineage, for example. And this is the type of work specifically with ayahuasca that, you know, they say can take minimum 10 years of training before you're ready to actually facilitate that process for someone. So my experience is really my personal experience and the experience that I've seen happen in, in, in the people that I've coached and worked with. And it's really a pretty, a profound, in some ways it's like a, it's like its own technology, although it's just made out of plant materials. But I, I guess I'll just focus on ayahuasca. Plant plant medicine is a is a very broad subject. Okay. Then right? let's let's narrow the definition. Yeah. Or so the, the ones the ones that have been most present on our journey, and and there's the whole category of psychedelics, right? Many of which are synthetic. Plant medicines are generally nature based. So psilocybin mushrooms, for example, or ayahuasca, which is a brew that is made of a vine, a leaf, and water. Three ingredients cooked down over several days to this very thick viscous brew, which you then ingest in a ceremonial context. You need, you know, supervision, <laughs> trained professional supervision to be able to actually go into that state because what it does is it, it, it releases a large amount of DMT in the body, dimethyltryptamine, which is essentially what's often called the God molecule, but it's, it's essentially the molecule that is actually naturally occurring in many plants and animals and even in our human bodies, we have it, but we generally don't get to experience much of it because what it does is it sort of 
takes us out of what we think reality is with our five senses. So the perception of reality that we have, right, which is that it's linear, that it's time-based, that I have a physical body, that I can taste and smell and hear and touch and all the things, that sense of reality sort of dissolves and and allows our spirit, if you will, our, our soul, the aspect of ourselves that exists that is not physical, to explore other aspects of reality, if that makes sense. All right. So I'm going to pause you. I'm going to pause you so I can make sure I'm tracking. There's a lot of words I don't know. And I want to learn this and I want, I want, I want to learn it. And if I learn it, there's somebody going, thank you for slowing them down because she lost me a dimethyltryptoline. Okay. So we got this DMT and I, I, I know you're not a doctor. You're not a shaman. You don't play one on the internet. You're just talking from your personal experience. I got that. The DMT is that, did, did you say, and forgive me if you said it, did you say that that is produced in the body when the viscous vine leaf water brew is introduced to the body? The body produces the DMT? Actually, so you're, you're, so it's a combination. Both are true. So you have naturally occurring DMT in your body, which is generally only experienced for a very short period of time during birth and death. So, and and if you look at what those two moments are, there are these transition moments, right? From one state into another state, really from a soul perspective, if you, if you believe in, in a, in a spiritual aspect to the human experience. So, so the, the vine, the ayahuasca vine is an inhibitor that prevents your body from breaking down the DMT that is coming from the leaf. So the leaf contains the DMT. So these two ingredients are are put together. And normally if you put a bunch of DMT in your body, you would have your body's natural defense mechanism would essentially say, Hey, this isn't, we, we, we actually don't want to leave our body because if we do, we might get eaten by a tiger, right? It's a very evolutionary process to not leave the body, but to be present in the body. So, so there's a mechanism that would normally have the DMT immediately get eaten up. But because the vine is an inhibitor of that process, it allows us to experience DMT. Our body essentially gets flooded with this DMT that's coming from this this leaf, also allows us to, to have an experience of our own endogenous DMT, which it's still a lot of science is really just starting to understand how much of that we actually have and where it lives in our body. Some people say it's in the pineal gland, which is in the third eye area, but, but there's still a lot of question marks around that. And so it's a really fascinating thing because the vine and this, this leaf, which is called the chacruna leaf, a lot of times it can be differently. The combination of these elements you know, you have to wonder how did the indigenous people of South America, which is where this medicine comes from, actually know how to combine these elements? How did they know to cook it down for days until it turned into this particular type of brew that then would create these profoundly transcendental experiences where coming coming out of an ayahuasca ceremony, a lot of times there's profound healing, awareness, insight, clarity, direction. I mean, what what this medicine can facilitate for people is pretty astounding. What's the answer to that question? How did they know? (laughs) Well, there's a lot of theories, you know, in the shamanic cultures and there's various lineages, many, many different lineages in which this medicine has been served in a ceremonial context for, for generations. But, but they would say that it was their communication with nature and the nature spirits and their ability to actually, like a lot of indigenous cultures had an active communication with life 
right? With the elements, with, with the wind, with the water, with the fire, with the earth, with the animals, with the plants, there was a, it, we, they, there was not that disconnection that we experience in our modern world. And so there was a dialogue happening and that dialogue would lead them to find healing plants, to understand how to create relationships with specific plants that could help humanity be in, in harmony with nature and also in harmony with themselves and each other. Okay. I did a, I did an interview with her name's escaping me now. We'll link it up in the show notes, but she's a, it's a Harvard professor and she is, she's the mushroom lady. Like she, uh-huh. she's all in on mushrooms. Like she's in, she's found fungi that does didn't exist anymore. And I asked her a similar question and here's the answer she gave me. And I'd love to hear your take on whether or not your work works sort of the same way. She said, you know, if you had a trauma, she had a pencil in her hand. So let's say you had a, po- a trauma with a pencil and like, you know, you were attacked by the pencil in your head. And so you had this re- reaction to a pencil. When you're taking a journey that the, the neurological wiring of that trauma where you see the pencil and freak out can be erased and rewired in a different way for a whole multitude of reasons. Is that sort of the kind of thing that you're saying when somebody's going on a journey? Absolutely. That, that can absolutely happen. And it's, it's really pretty extraordinary how in some, sometimes there's a visceral sense that the plant medicine is actually performing some form of like psychic surgery on you where you can feel that rewiring happening in real time. And so as Benjamin mentioned, you know, for him, the real pivot from stress and anxiety to waking up at peace and fulfilled was that he was able to bring all of this, all of these traumas and insecurities to the surface. What he means by that, just to take, go a little bit deeper is like, he's bringing it to the surface of his awareness and then through feeling it fully, instead of repressing and rejecting it the way that our defense mechanisms usually have us do with painful material, he was able to actually feel it all the way to its completion. So this idea that energy cannot be created nor destroyed. So every energetic imprint that you have using your, your pencil analogy, right? There was an energy of trauma that entered the body when that occurred originally. But if that energy wasn't allowed to fully live through your body. Like if you, if you look at a gazelle in nature being chased by a lion, it's running for its life, right? High, high stress, traumatic experience. But when it escapes and the lion goes away, what does it do? It sort of shakes it off and then it moves on. And next thing you know, it's grazing and it's at peace. And it's not like, you know, processing or, or repressing that experience. It's just like, well, that's part of my experience, right? And so that shaking it off, that tangible, visceral, physical release of energy is something that we don't do as human beings in our culture. When we have something traumatic happen, and when I'm saying traumatic, it could be as traumatic as you know, physical violence with your spouse, or it could be the trauma of getting bills you can't pay, or having a startup and, and feeling the pressure of the employees that are depending on you, right? Whatever your, the trauma is that you're experiencing, your nervous system is registering that energy. But if you don't have a way to actually let that energy complete itself and express itself so that you're not storing it, it will continually store and get more and more compacted. And then like she used the example of the wiring, it gets like hardwired into your system. 
And no yeah. amount of talk therapy can get rid of it because the talk therapy is happening on the intellectual level. But these patterns live in the body. They live in the nervous system. You know, this is an interesting subject. I, I'm acutely, I have a seven-year-old daughter and I am acutely aware of the things that are going on around her when, you know, when we're walking through the world and living in the world. And I'm always looking to see how she's interpreting different things. And we run a boat two weekends ago and we're in a place called Livorno on the ocean here in Italy. And uh, there was a diver that was out scuba dive, uh, snorkeling effectively with like this very little buoy. And the way it's set up is they have like a buoy with a little flag and he's, he's snorkeling and there's a rope that's tied to him and tied to the buoy. But the buoy was like this big and we're coming into the sunshine. And all of a sudden we hear this bang and we look and we see this guy just waving and we see the buoy that's upside down. So we made a picture in our head that there were two of them and we ran over one of them. And Sophia, my daughter, she says, you know, did we just kill somebody? And yeah. so I, we came back around and the guy said, I was by myself, everything's fine. I'm just telling you, that was my, that was my buoy. And we, we said, is there two? And he said, no, no, it was just me, it's fine. But she's shaking and crying. And I was like, I know that no matter how much I explained to her that this didn't just happen, there's something that just happened in her body that she's going to need to do some work at some point in her life to get out of, because, you know, no amount of honey, that's not what happened. Here's what happened is going to help. So you don't think about these little things using the example, you know, it doesn't have to be traumatic like that, but it could be smaller. Okay. All right. B. So if I am your guy and I say, take me on the journey, I want to, I want to do this. Like, you know, I've, you know, I only got so much time left here on this planet. I got some demons I need to get rid of some shadow work I need to do. And, you know, hopefully this will all lead to an ayahuasca ceremony. How does one begin to do work with you? And are you the right person to ask about dope art? <laughs> yeah. So I guess I'll, those are two separate things. We'll, we'll dive they in are, the first They one. are. Sorry. I'll, I'll, I'll let Azra jump into the dope art. Yeah. So we have a program. We, we really, de we've designed, we have, we call it the becoming process and we have two containers, if you will. We've created a offering for basically somebody, people like me five or 10 years ago, really successful, unfulfilled. They're seeking more in life. And, 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 and then we have another container that is basically who Azria was you know, five or seven years ago, which is somebody who is very heart-centered, wanting to have impact in the world, but not necessarily, maybe there's a gap between that desire and creating things in the material world. And so they're, they're two completely separate kind of buckets. And then we have a six-month program that we take people through. And so there's weekly curriculum, there's Every other week, there's Zoom calls, visualizations, exercises. It's it's a pretty in-depth commitment. I mean, it's it's like you know, going to university kind of commitment, right? And then over that period of time, we do three retreats that will include plant-based medicine work. And and over that time, uh, in in addition to the curriculum that you get, you build your operating system, a new operating system for your life. It's a deep analysis of where you came from, why you are the way you are. It's from today going all the way back that words, we do a deep analysis and then really 
you know, what are the promises? What's your why? What's the look forward? And so you build a new operating system for your life over that period of time. And then we use plant-based medicine for a number of reasons, but one of them is it, 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 it often takes the, we have an ego and we have a consciousness that kind of also likes to keep things at bay, but it allows things to come to the surface. One, it, there could be awarenesses that you have around where you might want to go in life. Like for me, it was a big one was, was having a child that did not think I wanted to have another child. And through this work, I realized I was like, Oh, this wants to happen, but also it, it allows us to, to move beyond the conscious awareness and deal with those, let those, those things that are holding us back, those insecurities, those traumas that we might not even be aware of. Like I didn't realize how significant that little boy who couldn't read was, was carried through my life. And in this work, it allowed that to come to the surface so we could work with it. And so we use plant-based medicines to kind of move beyond the conscious awareness. Okay, I wanna jump in for 15 seconds and say, if you're an entrepreneur grinding away and not taking time to experience extraordinary things around the world with other entrepreneurs, you may wanna join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard Mastermind to Dubai on November 19th. Head over to workhardplayhardexperience.com and fill out an application. Okay, when the ceremony, let's say somebody signs up, they do the work with you guys, and they're getting ready for their first ayahuasca session, journey? What's Ceremony. the word? Ceremony. Ceremony. Okay, I knew there was a better word. Okay, mm -hmm. so they're getting ready for it. The reason why I'm jumping to this is because in somebody's head who's on the fence right now, that's where their head is. They're thinking, I don't know if I could do this. I don't know what this is gonna be like. You know, I've seen movies, people are throwing up. I've heard stories. And who knows what's true, what's not true. And they're fearful, they're scared, and they don't understand. So, and I don't, I don't know whether or not this is something you guys want to talk about. And if you don't, it's totally cool. But maybe you could sort of explain a little bit about what it looks like. I know we talked about the basics, right? Vine, leaf, water, thick brew, drink it under supervision. And, but take me from there. Like, what does that hour, two hours, night, what, like, what, what's going on? So the, the short answer is, is there's no ceremony that's the same. They're, they're all very different. And, and I've had ceremonies that take me into just bliss. Like heart is just exploding open one with the universe, one with nature. And, and, and I've, I've gone the other extreme. Right. And so we like to say that the universe, the universe is always, you know, working in your favor. It's benevolent and the same with the medicine. And so sometimes you might say, listen, I'm calling in my, my desire is to have more prosperity in my life or my desire is to find my soulmate, right. Or to heal my relationship, right. You have this, this desire that you take into ceremony. And sometimes the universe will take you to the bliss of that thing, like, you know, abundance in, in whatever way you're, you're seeking. And sometimes it takes you to the complete opposite, deep despair. And, and what the universe is doing is, is a lot of times we spend our lives, as we talked earlier, in resistance to these, these feelings that we have. And Michael Singer talks about it as, as, as kind of the, the dream state, right? When we dream, a lot of times, like you, you dreamt last night that you killed somebody, like what's that about? Well, your subconscious is bringing to the surface feelings, right? There's feelings there that need to be processed and transmuted. And you can't 
resist those feelings. And so the medicine sometimes will say, maybe it takes me in the deep despair of being completely broke, alone, old man. What's it doing? It's allowing these insecurities that, I, that are there, these feelings that are there to come to the surface so you can actually feel them and transmute them. And, and, and then sometimes when it gives you the bliss of like, you know, the, the abundance that you're seeking, it's giving you a reference point. So when you come back to your reality, there's a gap, but you've now had a real life felt experience of what it feels like to be, you know, living in abundance or being with your soulmate or whatever that is. And so the medicine is giving you a reference point. And now you have a, some, you're like, oh, I know what that felt like. I know what it feels like to be with my soulmate. And so when you go into the reality and you start dating, for example, maybe you're like, well, this doesn't feel in alignment with what I felt. So I know I now have a reference point. But the yeah. ceremonies, this work is, is typically, it's intense. It's, this isn't like people think, oh, like, you know, I'm going to go and get, you know, get high. Well, a lot of this work is really intense and I think you have to be ready for it. And it's not for everyone. And we don't, we don't, don't recommend it for everybody. And so I think one getting educated about, you know, who you're sitting with is very important. The set and the setting who's serving this medicine. It's really important. There's a lot of charlatans out there and then have a really solid intention and, and be ready for an intense experience. Yeah, the word intense is the is the uh, the thing that's throwing me off my game here. The happy stuff is fine, you know. <laughs> as long as long as I'm as long as I'm tiptoeing through the rainbows, I feel like it's going to be okay. But the the other extreme is the one that I personally worry about. Think about it like, let's say you had you ate something that really was sitting, you know, really upsetting you. You had like food poisoning. Yep, and you know, the, the, the thing you want most is to get it out, right. Whichever direction it comes out. Right. Yep. And so we, we have this, this toxic thing in our system and our body wants to release it. A lot of times this medicine work is allowing us to do that in the emotional realm, right? We have these things that we've accumulated over a lifetime, toxicities, you know, distortions of our own reality, traumas that that pencil example that you gave, like traumas as a child that might seem insignificant. You talked about the one with your daughter, like she might carry that for her whole life. And, and, and there's, there's a, there's a lot of different ways we can work through those somatic release, talk therapy, meditation, breath work. Like there's, there's a lot of different modalities you can use to bring things to the surface. I've seen people in breath work sessions have profound realizations, right? But the medicine has been one of our most valuable tools. And what it does is allow you to bring those things to the surface. And so what I would say is, is like a lot of times when you have that, that toxic food in your system, you can feel that and you want to get rid of it. A lot of times in the emotional realms, it's there, but you can't even wrap your arms around it. You don't even know. And so would you feel better purging that? Even if the experience of purging it was very difficult, intense, right? But would you want to feel the relief of having purged it because I've done that so many times where I like, I come out of a ceremony with that. That was so difficult. And the next day I feel like a million bucks, like the, oh, yeah. a I, I, world was taken off my I shoulder. I always feel better after I throw up, but the thought of knowing I'm about to throw up is never fun. So it's never fun. I'm with you. Okay. Azraya, tell me about dope art. What is it? Dope art. So dope make dope art has, is a bit of a mantra around here and dope stands for daring, original, purposeful expression. Okay. And so it's really this kind of 
belief, I guess, or value this way of operating that, that we use of saying, okay, in a world that is, you know, we're, we're so conditioned to think about what we can, what we can get, how we can get, how we can get people to buy our thing or how we can make more. Like there's this constant, like, how, how do I have to play the game right? Like me as an actress, like what, what do I, what movie do I have to write? Even if I want to, I want to write a, a love story or a drama, but that's not going to do well. So I'm going to write a thriller, you know, a psychological thriller. Cause that'll be, that'll sell more. And, and so a lot of times in our creations, in our art, and we're using that word very broadly, like your okay. business could be your art. There's, there's a, yeah, there's a giving away of power to trying to get some kind of result or trying to, trying to fit into some form of box. And so this, this idea of making dope art is really like, what is the most unique, raw, daring, original, and purposeful expression that you can bring forward that is so authentically you and so authentically true to your highest excitement that it isn't tainted in any way by what you think it's going to get you. Got it. Got it. So you're, so, you know, I tell you what's interesting about this. I, I have never, you, 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 I'm sure you can't tell. I have never done ayahuasca and <laughs> I have been dancing on the edge of it for probably a few years now, but I have a lot of friends who have, and I will tell you that there is an absolute palpable, viewable change with the evolution of who they are. They're lighter. They're lighter. They're more creative. They're happier. And I think right now, a real life example that many will be able to relate to is Joe Rogan. Joe is going through a shitstorm right now. <laughs> and he posted the, the other day, he said, people keep asking me, about how I'm getting through all of this shit. And he's like, he videos a dessert that's on fire. And he writes, I'm eating this and mushrooms. <laughs> and I was like, you know, and if you listen to his show, he has become the most, to, to give you an idea, Fox News has a share of 2 million downloads. It is the highest right now. And there's 2 million people that listen to the number one show on television, which is on Fox News. 12 million download his show every week. Yeah. 12 million. Like he's okay. got a podcast, right? His ability to flow in the moments and ask questions and not be confrontational. He'll, he has said many times he attributes to his experiences doing ceremonies like this. So the proof is in the pudding. The stuff that you guys do just works. Harvard, Stanford, every major university is now behind plant medicine, which was absolutely considered woo-woo, crazy stuff. It is not the case right now. There, there's millions of dollars and all you have to do is Google Michael Pollan to see. There's millions of dollars around this kind of work. So you guys are doing legit shit. So you wrote a book and you wrote a book that has a Q right in the middle of a word. So the word I'm about to say, put a Q in the middle of it and you'll get, uh, you'll understand the title. It's called Becoming. So first of all, why did you put a Q in the middle of a perfectly fine word? 
<laughs> yeah, I, I think there's a lot of reasons, right? One, one, it's tied to our last name. But the, the main reason is that we believe that the, the journey of this personal development journey begins with asking yourself those tough, essential questions. And so that was really fundamental in, in, in what we do. And so we, we like to ask ourselves the tough questions in the book. We dive into that. And so that, that's the, the, the primary reason that we use the cue. All right. Who is the book for? The book is really for the same two archetypes, if you will, that Benjamin described earlier, the, the, you know, who we were five, five, seven years ago. So the successful entrepreneur who is playing the game, maybe in the more traditional sense of like more, bigger, better, faster, and realizing slowly, but surely that that's not filling that deeper ache in the soul to, to have fulfillment in the present moment. And then, and then the version of me, the, the one who's like, very connected already to the heart intelligence and wanting to be of service, but still trying to figure out how to pay rent and not able to really make things happen in, in, in the create tangible results in the, in the, in the 3d, as we call it. So yeah, the book is really specifically written for those two demographics, which was a challenge because they're very different, just sure. like we are very different. And so to, to create something that was the company that we worked with that helped us publish our book, they, they asked, of course, that first question when we started the process was, well, who's the book for? And we said, well, we kind of feel like it's for these, it's, it's, it's for, for who we were, but we're very different. And they said, you know, I was actually the CEO of the company. He was like, I've never ever given an author this feedback, but I actually think that in this case, you're right. Like I would normally say you have to pick one person, yeah. but in this case, I think it'll actually work if you write it for both. And I feel like we've done a good job weaving our voices together, sharing from, so we, we, we both share from our individual first person perspectives. And then we also have a we voice where it's kind of the shared voice where we share concepts and and give, give the reader really tangible tools to engage with as well so that hopefully the book can become a portal and an entry point into their becoming process. Yeah, and the subtitle of the book is Everything You Didn't Know You Wanted. And I think that's, uh, you know, important to highlight because, you know, how I show up in the world and the things I'm excited about in the world, I didn't know I wanted, you know, five years ago. And so my life today is everything I didn't know I wanted. And part of the journey that we take people on is, is discovering that. It's really good. It's great. Who came up with that one? Well, it came up hybrid. When we bought this land, I lived, when I met Azri, I lived in Venice, like in the city, walking distance from restaurants in the vibe. Venice, California. Venice, (laughs) Yeah. And she's like, you know, I need to be in nature. And I was like, what? Like, we're, this is great right here. And so we bought this, this land in Malibu. We called it, we called the second mountain and it was everything I didn't know I wanted. And I, I, I said that. And so Azria bought this piece of art that's at our front door, everything I didn't know I wanted, because now it's like, I can't, this land is so precious. It's so special. And being in nature is really everything I didn't know I wanted. And so that kind of morphed into the subtitle of the book. Really good. That's that's really good. You're near uh, Rich Roll. Do you know Rich Roll? Not I know personally. who he is, but don't know him personally. We, we need to get you on his show. You're a perfect fit for it and your neighbors. So that would be an easy commute. Uh, yeah. Okay. We're going to have a little fun as we, as we wrap up. I'm going to ask you some questions and you're going to be like, why is he asking me these questions? These are really weird. So just roll with me. We're going to start with 
Azria, what do people often get wrong about you? Ooh, what do people often get wrong about me? I think because I'm so focused on my mission, I can potentially some come across, I don't know if aloof is the right word, but like I've, I've had feedback that I come across, like I don't, I'm not necessarily interested in someone or I'm, I'm, I'm not warm, but I, I really don't think it's that I'm not interested. I think it's that I, I am so focused and I'm so clear on where I'm going that there's not a lot of things that I allow to pull at my attention to distract me. Got it. Got it. B, what are some things that you're doing right now that you don't really love? You're like, I'm doing it. I don't love it, but I have to like right now I'm just in it. Yeah. So when I sold my first business, I had 1800 employees and I swore I'd never have another employee. And so I did a lot of angel investing and financing of things. And now we're building a a company that I'm so excited about, but we're in startup mode and I never thought I'd be here again. And so when you're in startup mode, you you're doing, you know, you're wearing 20 hats. And so there's a lot of, of kind of admin things and logistical things that I don't love doing. I wish I wish I had a team already, and you know, because I love working with a highly you know effective team. So I'm I'm just dealing with a lot of little things that I I wouldn't want to. And and everyone on our team currently is like beyond capacity. Do you realize how much faster you're going to scale because of your background? Oh yeah, it's 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 going to happen very quickly. We we plan to be the largest psychedelic assisted personal transformation platform in the world in short order. Boom. I love it. Okay. Azria, what new behavior or habits has most improved your life? What's a new thing that you're doing? It's a new habit. It's a new behavior. And you're like, this is really making a difference. I've always been in in the past. I've been kind of an intuitive meditator where what I mean by that is like, I've never had a specific practice or discipline. I've just more spent time in stillness and breathing, but I've really stepped up my meditation game in the last six months or so. Mm-hmm. And, and I've been working with what's called Ziva meditation. Yeah, I had her on the show. She's great. Emily. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. So we, we did a deep dive with her and she taught us her technique. And so it's twice a day, first thing in the morning and then before dinner, 20 minutes. And I'm for sure noticing a dramatic, I mean, with the amount of things we have going on. And like he said, like we're in beyond startup mode. We only shared a fraction of what we're up to on this call. I don't think I would be able to function without having that time to decompress. I love it. Okay. B, what is an unusual or absurd thing that you love? Like people would look at this and go, this is weird, but you love it. Hoppe. Oh yeah. Hape. So hape is an indigenous like snuff and it's, it's a combination of like a bar, some different blends, but bark and a little bit of tobacco and you kind of snort it through your nose. And it's kind of like an indigenous shamanistic thing. And it's, I think most people would find that very strange. I think so. I think so too. (laughs) I think so too. (laughs) If you could spend one month anywhere in the world, where would it be and why? Hmm. Well, what's that's a very tangible question for us right now because we're actually about to remodel our home for 18 months. So we and we're not we don't have any real concrete plans. So we're asking ourselves exactly that question. Where would we go if we could go anywhere? And I think what we're we're really feeling called to explore well, Mexico has our heart. We love Mexico, we love South America. We've explored quite a bit down there already. But I feel like we're we're feeling called to the Amalfi Coast. 
Oh my God. Just got the third one. I just announced my next event is in the Amalfi coast. No way. Holy shit. This is like, just keeps coming. I was on the phone all morning with the Amalfi coast booking my events that I'm doing there. Crazy stuff. We actually, my wife and I got married on the Amalfi coast and our next event is there. So if you decide that you want to do it, I can dial you guys in. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. It's a, it's amazing place. B, what would your friend say is one of your superpowers? It's both a superpower and my Achilles heel is, is I am very extreme and I go all into things. And so it's why I've been successful that I just, I give everything I have to things I'm passionate about. And it's also bit me in the butt because I tend to do it or historically, I should say the old version of me would do it without sometimes do it with things that I shouldn't be playing with. And so, yeah. So it's, 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 it's my Achilles heel and having the maturity and discernment to know when I should be going all in is, is really key. <laughs> yep. Got it. All right. One more, and then we'll do a bonus question. We'll do Osria. What is your guilty pleasure? Oh, definitely salty fried, crunchy things. <laughs> salty. She went right to it. Salty definitely. fried, crunchy things. There was, oh, yes. no, <laughs> there was no, at all. It was like salty fried, crunchy. Yes. Okay. Last question. And you guys can pick whichever one. What one question would you like to ask me? Mm. When are you going to come sit in an ayahuasca ceremony with us? That's the same question I I came up with. When... uh, (laughs) Speechless. I love it. It's speechless. I am absolutely terrified. I am making a horrible story in my head of throwing up, feeling like I want to die and I'm stuck there and not thinking of the other side. But like I said earlier, I have so many references around me that are showing that if you get to the other side, it's just like, it just like I, because I don't know what's going to happen. It just terrifies me. So I don't know is the answer. What would you recommend for a guy that, because I'm sure somebody else feels the same way. What would you recommend for somebody that's in that place to help them push them over the edge? I guess I would say we don't, we don't believe in pushing people over the edge. We would say that when you're ready, you'll be ready. And I don't think that like, we don't ever push people uh, to, to, to sit. We just conform them and let them kind of be out in the universe. And, and one day you'll wake up and you'll be like today, it's now I'm ready is kind of what I would say. I would also say that what I'm hearing in your fear is really the fear of the unknown, which is of course, one of the most existential fears that we all as human beings have to have to live with. And, and a lot of times that fear is very much connected to control your relationship to control. So I would probably say, okay, those are the two main themes in what's kind of preventing you from saying yes to that journey. Mm -hmm. And so where else in your life are those themes showing up and where else in those life in your life are those themes potentially stopping you from being the fullest, most alive and most radiant expression of who you could be. Oh my God. She's good. And I got a, I got a list for you. I'm going to need to lie down (laughs) on the couch. I'll, I'll I'll leave you with this. The, the event planner, I'm doing the six day event and that we're doing two in Florence and then four in Amalfi. And I, I got it pretty packed. Like I got some crazy shit we're doing. And she said, when are you leaving time for the magic to happen? And I said, 
as long as it happens on Tuesday at 8 p.m., <laughs> it's, it's fine. <laughs> so maybe that maybe that's going to answer your question. You guys are awesome. This is so much fun. Do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening? Yeah, I mean, we are basically just starting to share a lot of content with the world. We haven't really we got haven't gotten into the media component of the becoming platform, but. Becoming is really a platform that that houses a variety of transformational codes, as we like to call them. So, so yeah, head to our website, becoming.me with a Q, and sign up to receive the three stages of becoming because that's a journey that you can receive directly to your inbox and has really powerful value and content. We also have a bunch of like mini documentary films that are part of that that share our personal journey through the stages of becoming because we really believe that the age of the guru preaching from the mountaintop is kind of over and it's time for us to have reference points of real human beings who are doing the work and who are willing to be seen in that vulnerable, messy, and sometimes really difficult process. And so all of our content, our media, our book, everything we share is from that place of true transparency. And yeah, we would just invite you to join us on that journey and come along for the ride. Amazing. Thanks for taking the time, guys. Thank, Thank you so you, much. Brother. Brother Welcome. Things. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live. 